you know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Today, you're in for a wild ride and one that I know you're going to love because you're going to savor our guest. She is a four-time New York Times collaborative writer, yet for years, she lived in the constant fear that someone would Google her name and in doing so would uncover her checkered past. So what is that checkered past? Well, she was prescribed some painkillers, and those painkillers led to an addiction, and the addiction led to a worsening addiction, and eventually led to an even cheaper fix called heroin. And yet, Lara had to begin stealing neighbors' credit cards and other identifying information to pay for that addiction, and it eventually led to her stealing information to pay for her groceries and her gas after her cash went to buying drugs. Eventually, caught. She was eventually convicted of 32 felonies, was sent to a year in county jail, then drug treatment, and then eventually supervised probation. Today, our guest is going to join us to share her downward spiral from soccer mom to opioid addict to jailhouse shot caller, and then her unlikely, this is remarkable, this is maybe one of my favorite parts of her story, her unlikely comeback as a highly successful ghostwriter. Here, Lara share how she learned to forgive herself and others, navigate life as a felon on probation, prove to herself that she is more good than bad, that we do not need to be negatively defined by our past, and this ought to sound familiar to you, and that indeed in doing these things that our best is yet to come. My friends, I want you to buckle up today. It's a conversation about lying and stealing, but more importantly, about healing and redemption and about how we all have the power to rewrite our narratives, to embrace the many lives we have lived in the past, are living right now, and are called to live going forward. So without further ado, let me bring on my friend. She's about to be yours. Her name is Laura Love Harden. Laura, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm fangirling out over you and your book on fire. So I'm thrilled to be here talking to you. Brownie points will not mean I don't ask you the hard questions. So, uh, <laughs> no, I, no, I mean that. that. I mean it. It's an honor. And I think as people hear your life story, they'll recognize why I view what you said there as just such an honor because you're not only have you read so many books, you've written 
so many books. So if you have an opportunity of bumping into somebody in a grocery store or an airport or a bookstore, and they say, Laura, your name sounds familiar. Tell me about you. How would you respond to that? It's interesting. I res- That question would send me in fear like not that long ago because I spent a good decade being afraid of people asking me that question, tell me about you because I didn't know what to say. But I'm a literary agent. I've been a collaborative ghostwriter. I have an MFA in fiction writing. I'm a mother of four boys and two stepchildren. I have a lot of animals. I love to read. And there's a lot of interesting filler in between all of that. <laughs> Well, our job is to slowly unpack the filler and right. uh, gosh, it is, it's far from filler. It's, it's both the bad stuff and the good stuff, but it's really yeah. the stuff of life. And yeah, when I first heard your story, I knew that I wanted to bring you on our show. So thank you for saying yes. So my upbringing, because mm-hmm. uh, you and I are going to compare scars today, my upbringing, two parents, five siblings, picket fence, safe upbringing, all five of my siblings are still alive. My parents are still alive. And I recently lost my grandparents. It was like a typical idyllic upbringing. Yours was a little different than mine. Would, would you tell our listeners what life was like for you as a little kid? I grew up with three siblings, two brothers and a sister. With my mom as a single mom, mostly. She and my dad uh, split up. And a good part of my childhood is, um, is blocked out. It's only things that I've been told to later as I had to play, you know, detective in my own life. But so I don't have a lot of memories except for of school. I remember all of school. But um, my home life was uh, a lot of violence and a lot of fear. My sister was a, became an alcoholic as a teenager and died in a drunk driving accident. My brother became a heroin addict, died of an overdose. My other brother had some severe mental health issues. So my childhood wasn't great. And my escape from all of that was into books and my imagination. Yeah. And I forget where it shows up in your book. I, I just read it. But very early on, you say, uh, I loved reading. It, yeah. it was my escape. It was my yeah. addiction. The first time. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, the actual, it's actually the first line of the book. It says reading was my first addiction. Well, let's talk about that first addiction. It seems like a relatively healthy one. Yeah, there, it's a great one. going to be some difficult addictions that follow. But what was it about reading that you, you, you loved? I was curious about other people's lives. I loved the escape of it. Really, it was all about escape for me. I could go into these other worlds and other lives. And, you know, I was a little precocious reader. So I just read desperately. I think that's the word I read desperately. And it was really escape. And I, you know, I think that that's what turned me into becoming a writer really is reading so much. But I wrote short stories. I wrote a lot of bad poetry as a kid, uh, which actually an old childhood friend just uh, sent me some pictures of some bad poetry I wrote as a kid. So she had it. But um, but I just loved watching other people's lives and learning about their lives. And I loved like people who had clear motivations for what they did. And that's what books had, because in my world, the adults around me, it was confusing, right? I was confused. I didn't understand what was happening. It was, um, I had a very lonely childhood and the books were my company. Normally we take our cue on what life ought to look like from the people we're doing life with, siblings, mm-hmm. parents. Uh, what was your dream as a kid? What, what did you imagine you would do later on when you grew up? I remember this clearly. I wanted to be a writer always. 
I also wanted to be an astronaut and a lawyer and an actress. So I used to imagine this scenario where I was an actress playing a lawyer who went into space and wrote a book about it. Like I had that very clear memory of all of that. But I I didn't really know. I knew writing and books, writing was what I was good at. So I that's I you know gravitated towards that. All I knew is I wasn't going to be like anyone in my family. When I graduated high school and went off to college, I went as far away geographically as I could. I really thought education meant inoculation. Like if I just mm. focus on school, which was my happy place, my safe place growing up, uh, everything would turn out okay. So we're, tell me, talk more about that. Where'd you go for school and what were you seeking there? So I went, I grew up in Massachusetts. So I went to uh, California. I went to UC Santa Cruz. I majored in English and creative writing. And then I went straight from college to UC Irvine uh, to get my MFA in creative writing. So I did it very quickly and early straight high school, college, graduate school. And life starts happening pretty quickly. Even before you finish your thesis, uh, you're busy being a mama. Yeah, I got pregnant with my oldest son between my first and second year of graduate school. My son, Dylan, was born uh, two weeks before my thesis was due. So I had him on my lap as I was typing my master's thesis. And then I ended up having three boys, my three older boys, in four and a half years. So life got very real very quickly. You had, what, three kids under the age of five? Yes. You went through your divorce? Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yes. What was that like? Um, it was, it was horrible. <laughs> it was, it was hard, but I loved being a mom. I loved my boys. I was really devastated at, cause growing up in my family, I assumed that everybody else had perfect sitcom TV families. You know, they had moms waiting with cookies when they came home from school. And so I really wanted to create the family I didn't have growing up. So you know, due to some infidelity and things when we were young and poor and all of the things when we split up, I was really grieving that loss, you know, that loss of that perfect, what I thought was the perfect family that everyone had and that I wanted for myself because I wanted to do everything differently, right? I was depressed, but I didn't have, uh, I'm not someone who ever knew this, the question, like, can you help me? Like, I didn't know how to ask for help. And I didn't have a language, you know, going back to growing up in my family, there was no emotional language used in my family. Like, I, I can't think of a single time when anyone would say like, how are you? How are you feeling? How is your day? So I didn't have both the language to ask for help or the language to say like, I think this is depression. It was just like, I have to, you know, just keep moving forward, keep go, you know, go, go, go everything's going to be okay, stuff all, everything down I was feeling. And when I had children, I stopped writing. And really, writing was how I made sense of the world, how I made meaning out of my life, my emotions. So I think those those two things were sort of a recipe for disaster for me. Well, let's talk about it. So you, you've lost your marriage, you lost your spouse, you lost the idyllic life that you uh, thought you were signing up for. Mm -hmm. No longer are you making cookies made with little chocolate chips for the kids when they come home from school. You're trying to make a living. Mm -hmm. And you're dealing with depression and you had an abusive background and all this stuff is now stacking on you and the weight of life hits you. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have the family to lean into and you don't have the language to use and you don't know the question, can you help me? What, what do you turn to? So, you know, back then, and this was in the, in the nineties, uh, doctors handed, you know, this is before the opiate crisis was really a crisis and they were handing out opiates 
right, left, sample packs, bubble packs. So you have an earache, you get Vicodin. You have a child, they give you Vicodin. And so I remember taking, I remember taking one pain pill and, you know, they were prescribed to me, uh, you know, legit. And I took one and I felt this sense of joy for no reason. Like I felt the depression lift, like the way it worked in my brain was it, it made me happy. Like didn't make me sleepy. didn't make me altered. It just made me feel like everything was going to be okay. Yeah. And no one grows up saying, I hope someday I'll be addicted to something, but you know, then it took two to have that same feeling. And then it took three at the end of my addiction to pain medication, just to jump ahead. Um, I was taking 60 Vicodin a day. Which is unimaginable. Yeah, unimaginable. It's unimaginable to me now, but yeah. I'm assuming that you had some friends who were following your story and loved you enough to call out concerns they might have when they saw them. I did have some friends, but again, I was so committed to playing this role that I'm okay, that everything is okay. I don't need anything. I have it all together. I'll figure it out. I'm the perfect mom. I'm the perfect um, you know, I was this time into my second marriage, perfect wife, everything's great. So when they asked, I denied it, you know, like that is the the hallmark of addiction. You deny it. I made up incredibly elaborate lies to explain why I was suddenly so skinny. And it made sense to me at the time. But yeah, I had people who were concerned, but I was really good at pretending. Like yeah. I'm really good at pretending everything's okay when it's not. You're not alone. Like a superpower, right? Yeah. You know, well, and it's odd because, and later on, I'll talk about the opposite of that, which actually is the superpower of being radically vulnerable, which Mm -hmm. you are today. But back then, it was a big old mask, and it was working sort of. Sixty Vicodin a day is not prescribed by your your nearby physician. So, how were you securing sixty pills a day? So um, back then, too, you could order them online right? There was lots of pharmacies in Florida. You could order them. I was a real estate agent. I don't think this is in the book, but I'll, I'll tell it, you know, I would uh, maybe show a house and take a peek in people's medicine cabinets. Yeah. There are all kinds of ways, but it becomes a full-time job to keep up that kind of a a habit. And that is about where we're going to go next, because that job is in part, what makes your story so stunning. This, (laughs) This real estate agent, beautiful lady, mother of three, almost four, life seems normal and you're addicted and you're about to become a thief. Yeah. So talk about that transformation and just slow step into it. Like the first time you did this, what's that look like? Well, um, so I was at that point, not a real estate agent. I actually owned a pet cemetery at that time. I had a whole different business uh, that was very successful in my second marriage. My second husband I'd met um, in a recovery program, right? In in the recovery community. One day I, you know, he had relapsed and he'd been going to rehab and I'd been uh, sort of struggling with that. And um, one day I found this sort of sticky brown stuff on the bathroom counter on this on the sink counter um and it was it was uh tar heroin is what it was and so I took it from him to protect him right and I I remember going I was going to volunteer my kids went to a Montessori school and I was going to do an art project with them and at the red lights there I was googling how to smoke heroin right like I was googling this 
Um, and I was really just in a, in a very desperate place and very unhappy. And again, pretending everything was fine in my life. So I started smoking heroin and that quickly blew up my entire life. Stopped going to work, stopped running the business. You know, I had six children in various private schools. I had, you know, a mortgage and car payments and um, needed to feed them and keep up the the charade and the money was gone. It was using up all the money. I wish I could remember specifically the first time, but I think, you know, honestly, it was at school uh, and, you know, it's hard to say this because it just sounds so horrible, but like, you know, I was at school drop off and everyone runs in to bring their kids into the school and I opened up uh, another mom's car door and a purse was in there and I took out a credit card. And then I went and used it at the grocery store. And that's what I would do. When you do that the first time, do you know it's wrong or do you have such a, a mask on that you're like, you know what, I'm doing this to feed my kids. And she's got more than enough money. She won't even miss one, one round of groceries. Yeah, I mean, I definitely knew it was wrong, but again, it's the, it is those justifications. Like I'm actually not hurting her because you know she'll just write it off a lost credit card to the bank and I do have to feed my kids. And actually her kids are coming over for a play date. So I have to feed her kids. You know, like it was just all kinds of justifications. Um, I knew it wasn't who I was, but when you're like in the compulsion of addiction, like your very survival depends on, yes. on like, to keep the using going. Cause I, it literally feels like you're going to die if you don't keep doing the drug or the substance, whatever it is. I tried not to think about it too much, you know, and I always say there's this window of time between like two and 4am. And that was the window when I can't lie to myself. Right. It always is. Even today, if there's something I'm a little uncertain about or worried about or having anxiety, or maybe this doesn't, you know, Maybe I didn't have a great interaction with that person. It's always, I always wake up in that time. And it's the one time when I'm perfectly unable to lie to myself. Mm -hmm. So I knew it was wrong and I couldn't stop and I couldn't ask for help. And in my mind too, which is so ironic, what happens later in the story, I thought there's no way on earth I could go to rehab and be away for 30 days from my children. Right. Like that would be absolutely impossible. So you, rather than do the impossible, you keep committing these these crimes. Right. And keep, rather than slowly stepping through the story, how how bad ultimately did it get? Um, well, it got so bad that that, you know, the the power was turned off at home and I started stealing the mail from my neighbors and um I stole a check from a close neighbor and they knew and everything was sort of closing in on me and I was arrested. Hmm. you know so, the police uh, came to my cul-de-sac yeah that's so painful man i so on november 4th 2008 i had a speaking event in halifax and i just remembered for a whole lot of reasons it's also election day here in the mm -hmm. united states and you remember that day for a very different reason talk about the police showing up in this perfect neighborhood in the cul-de-sac where you live with your kids yeah it was it was early afternoon on election day. And um, my youngest son, Caden was, um, he was three, he was about to turn four the next month. And I just, you know, set him up with all his little uh, stuffed animals around him to watch Wonder Pets, his favorite show about animals who rescue each other, right? 
And I was upstairs and there was just this pounding on the front door. And my husband at the time yelled to me to hide the drugs and went downstairs. And I didn't, you know, I was, you know, I put him in the sock drawer. Like I didn't know. And so I remember walking down, you know, they called, he called to me and I was walking down the hallway and it was just like, I knew in that moment that it was over. Like everything was over and a part of me was relieved. Hmm. Cause I kept saying like, tomorrow I'll fix everything tomorrow. I'll stop tomorrow. I'll like get everything together. I can do, you know, like it was always tomorrow. And I knew that there was, you know, I didn't know the extent of it, but I, I felt relief in that moment. I walked down the stairs, the police are all the sheriffs uh, in our County. Cause we lived in the County. The sheriffs were all down there and they handcuffed me. I begged them to let me call someone to come pick up my son you know, a family member, my other boys were at school and this was my son with my second husband. So they, the other boys were at school and they called child protective services. And I think that I still get choked up and it's been a lot of years because he was, uh, you know, he's at that age where attachment, you know, very attached and, and never spent a night away from me. And these strangers are grabbing him and my hands are handcuffed behind my back. And I'm trying to say, you know, like undo the stranger danger and be like, these are friends. It's okay. And, um, and so they, they took him away. And it was like, in that moment, everything broke in me. One of the things that moved me, you know, the whole book moves me and the way you write makes me feel like I'm hanging out with a friend. It's a very, <laughs> it's a very, very disarming way to just deliver both humor and also tragedy together. It's really well done. Uh, you essentially say, may I make the phone call to a friend so that my mm -hmm. child is safe, which any mother, any father, anyone who cared at all about a child would, of course, require and request. And it was the response from the sheriff or the deputy that just kind of breaks me, man. And it, it must have broken you too hearing it. Yeah. Yeah. At one point, you know, because uh, and this is actually after they had taken my son and I was like, where is he going? What's happening? And he said, you should not be anyone's mother. And that I'd never see him again. In the way you describe it in your book, was it more painful hearing that or thinking, and he's right? It was more painful thinking he's right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I didn't feel outrage at that statement at the time. I just felt the beginning of what would be a long shame journey for me in that moment. Yeah. And, you know, for those of us who've sat in the back of a police car and been fingerprinted and had the shot taken, like it's all shame. It's all misery. It's all unpleasant. Mm -hmm. You go through that. And during the, this time, you also realize you're never going to see your kids again. So it's a couple of days later where you make another decision that it basically almost ensures you'll never see your children again. Would, would right. you tell our listeners and our audience about that? Yeah. And if I start to cry, sorry, it's, it was a long time ago and it's still such uh, it's a hard thing to talk about. So I was, and, and um, by the way, before Laura shares anymore, <laughs> let me let you all know, like before you're like, dude, I can't handle any more of this woman's misery. Hang on for it. Cause this story doesn't go where you think. And it's so redemptive and it's so healing and it's so good. And it's so encouraging. And part of the reason what makes it so good is how bad it is. It is so bad. So, uh, Laura, I just appreciate you living this and then living through this and then sharing this. Thank you. But tell us where it took you that night. So for anyone who doesn't know, when you're detoxing from opiates, it doesn't feel good. Um, you don't sleep. 
So I was in jail. I'd never been in jail before. And um, I didn't know where my son was. I imagined all sorts of horrible things happening to him. So I made the decision and it was a really non-dramatic calm decision. I guess that's the way to do it. I, um, I decided that it would be better for my children to have a mother who is no longer alive than to have a mother who is in prison or jail. Um, and I made that decision. I decided to end my life. And I wrote a note to my boys. Um, and I, you know, waited uh, for lights out, which was like 10 o'clock. And I was out on what's called the freeway, which is bunk beds sort of in the open area. And there's lots of lock, you know, two tiers in the jail uh, block and, and locked doors where some people are. Um, and so I tied the sheet, you know, you have a very thin sheet, a thin blanket. I tied the sheet around my neck uh, in six knots and I tried to make it really tight because, you know, I thought it would be humiliating to just break my ankle, you know, and so I had decided I was going to wait for everyone to go to sleep and the guards come in and out every hour and they check with a flashlight, shine it around. Um, I knew I wasn't going to sleep because I was detoxing from opiates and I was going to wait for everyone to get quiet. I was going to walk up the stairs in there and hang myself from the top tier balcony. There's a little bars up there. And it was such a peaceful, I was in such a dark place. It was such a peaceful decision for me because I thought at that time that I had just absolutely failed at life. Like there's no mulligan, there's no do-over, there's no spark or, you know, I'm an optimistic person by nature, but I had no spark of hope in me. There was no way I thought that I had any inner fortitude to get through what was in ahead of me. And I also believed as someone who's writer in books, like I love redemption stories, but I believed in that moment that redemption, and I said this in my talk, is reserved for the good. And I truly believe that I was just bad. Like there was no redemption from the collateral damage I had caused. Um, and so I lied there waiting. And then the next thing I know, and I really do think it was, you know, a miracle of, of something that I, I fell asleep because I didn't sleep again for a month after that, never slept through the night again. I woke up to, you know, uh, 5 a.m. They're bringing in stacks of those plastic chairs, scraping across the floor. The lights go on. It's breakfast. And I wake up and I look around. I have the sheet tied around my neck, you know, and, and instantly again, I'm embarrassed. I was like, oh my God, I can't, I hope no one sees these sheet. You know, I didn't cross my mind like, oh, wow, I need help. You know, I just quickly tried to undo the knots. Um, and luckily I was not ever in that dark place again, that uh, it's, I don't even, you know, words fail me and words, you know, don't usually fail me to, to describe the darkness of that moment for me. So you find yourself in this place, not only of darkness, but of imprisonment. And uh, ultimately you're going to face justice. Yes. Uh, 32 counts. Yes. Yes. I pled guilty to 32 uh, felonies as part of a plea deal, which uh, none of them were violent, never had a violent moment in my life. I've thrown a head of lettuce at someone. That's my most violent moment. Uh, it was iceberg, which is a I, violent. I did that this lettuce. morning at home, man. Getting the kids out the door <laughs> is never an easy task. Lettuce seems to work. Yeah, it does. That next day, like I, I was never in that space again. And, and um, I still didn't trust that I had anything in me to get through what was ahead of me, but you know, I just kept, I kept going. I, I was sentenced to a year in jail. 
I was sentenced to a year of drug court afterwards and probation. So I spent uh, a year in jail. And But at the time when I was in the first few months, as things are navigating through the court system, if I hadn't done the plea deal, it was I was potentially going to be 27 years in prison. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, my my boys are going to be in their 40s. They're going to be 30s. Like I just could not, uh, I could not imagine that as my future and their future. Well, you live into the future. You you've made this bed. Now you're sleeping in it. You're going to spend a year behind bars, a year away from your kids, mm-hmm. a year away from life. Uh, a year living in shame, and it's about to get worse with, you know, as if it can get worse, you're reminded of that crime when an article shows up in your mail sent anonymously. Right. Tell, tell our listeners what, what the headline was, whose picture was on the front of it, and then what some of the comments were below it. Yeah. So I, at the time of my sentencing, there was a reporter in the courtroom, and I was kind of trying to dodge and weave and not get my picture taken. So the day after my sentencing, there was uh, the local paper here, the Santa Cruz Sentinel, had a front page headline that said, Aptos, which was the town I lived in, uh, neighbor from hell, sentenced. And it was my face. And someone anonymously mailed me all of the online comments that people wrote from that from that headline. And I opened up, I remember opening up the mail in jail and I started reading them. It was like every bad thing I've ever thought about myself confirmed, you know, and also some things that I didn't, I, I, I understood later, but I didn't understand at the time, which were like, you know, there's ways to make people go back to jail when they get out, she'll get hers and, and talking about my children and, you know, they're just you know, it was all anonymous names, some people I could tell, but it was just hundreds and hundreds of comments uh, saying all kinds of horrible things like, oh, is she a sociopath? Is she, you know, just crazy things or not crazy things at the time. I was, I just read everyone. I internalized everyone. You know, there's not a lot to read in jail. And so I just read those over and over again. And I internalized and I actually carried those comments around with me for years Mm. until someone said, throw them away. And it just sort of reinforced my belief that I was just bad. Mm. You've got a year in jail to to reflect on that belief. How do you spend that time? You said there's not a lot to read in jail. So what do you do in jail? So I did read one book, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, and uh, learn to meditate in jail, which is like a really great place to learn to meditate. I mean, there's easier ways, but if you find yourself in jail, do that. Um, But I started, I I got moved over to this more minimum security part of the jail after sentencing, and I started ghostwriting in jail. So I had my background as a writer, and you know, the women I was in jail with, a lot of them weren't much older than my 17-year-old son. My oldest son was 17 at the time, and their girls are 19, 20, very young. And, you know, I was uh, a mom with nowhere to put her mom energy. And so I, I started helping them out. I started writing letters to the judges on their behalf as them to help them get put in, you know, a long-term treatment program instead of prison to get passes. You know, 80% of women in jail are mothers. And to get passes to go to funerals or graduations or special event, you know, just an hour pass to go out. This was in the minimum security. So uh, it wasn't unheard of. So I, uh, I broke up with people as a ghostwriter. I uh, may have seduced a few people as a bro- ghostwriter. You know, I used my skills of listening and empathy. And 
it was really where I started ghostwriting, which, you know, we can, the story goes on from there, but when you use someone else's credit cards, that's identity theft. And so I, I was, that was what I was charged with. And now I'm ghostwriting in jail and helping a lot of women, you know, and I, I got the nickname mama love. That's the title of the book. That was my jail nickname. Every woman in jail has a nickname and your colleagues give it to you there, right? Your female colleagues. I just tried to um, do what I could to do a little bit of good there. Hmm. What what surprised you most about the ladies you were with in jail? Um, you know, I'd only known about jail from what I see on TV or movies, you know, and it really, um, it was really supportive. You know, most women were jail over substance abuse issues or sort of interpersonal relationships because of the men they're dating or married to or whatever it is. It was very supportive, which is, sounds weird, but also, um, you know, it, it just, I was trying, sorry, I lost my train of thought because I'm thinking about all of the women in jail. I was amazed at the level of intelligence and potential and creativity. People could make gourmet meals out of the most obscure bits of food. And, you know, there's like gourmet chefs and just creativity and ingenuity to build furniture out of, you know, Tampax boxes, honestly, you know, and, and so there was just so much untapped potential and also so much unresolved trauma. Mm. And the trauma continues. Yes. Uh, I have a friend, you know, so in this studio where I record these, the wall behind the camera are all the guests we've had on our show. And I'm looking at this beautiful man named Andre Norman. Great dude. But he spent, I think, 27 years locked up. And he said the only time worse than being locked up was really that first few months after coming out, mm-hmm. that the jail remained part of his life. I don't think most people realize that. So would you share a little bit of the story that you experienced? You shared it in your book about what life was like after you were released. Yeah. And being in jail, I would see some of the women get released and then they'd get right back in again. And I would think, how is that? Like, how, like, how stupid is that? Like, how is that? Like, when you do everything to not come back here, because as much as it was supportive and whatever, it's, you know, I still have nightmares to this day that I have to go back to jail. Right. So I had no idea when I got out, um, both how long I would have to pay or how hard it is to stay out of jail. And that's just from the obstacles of the probation system and the sort of bureaucratic requirements and the lack of communication. Um, and in many ways, it felt for me, and I know for a lot of women, it life felt safer in jail than it did. And I thought I was, you know, like, I'm gonna, I believe in, you know, like people paying for their crimes. I believe in justice. I believe, you know, there's a few parts of my story that I don't believe in. Like, I don't think public shaming really helps anyone rehabilitate. Um, but I didn't have any understanding when I got out of how all the ways in which I would still have to pay and be expected to pay and how that is for, for everyone in the criminal justice system. Um, and especially for women, I think, because 80% of those women are mothers and many of them are the sole caregivers. So, you know, I got out, I had to be in three different courts. I had to be drug testing for three different agencies as part of probation. You know, I didn't have a car. I was jobless, homeless, carless, friendless, childless. Um, you know, and I was kind of thrown out there like to rebuild my life and, um, and it's hard and, you know, and I had a master's degree 
and I have the privilege of that comes with being a, a white woman and I have a little bit of support and it was almost impossible not to go back to jail. So when I hear you, you, you describe that, I'm thinking of Jean Valjean. Hmm. He went to jail for stealing a loaf of bread. Right. He robbed a house. I broke a window pane and, and, and that, that crime followed him and followed him until finally he broke free of that and changed his identity and moved and became someone he wasn't. Um, you stayed where you were and there were the majority of the folks were kind of pushing against you, but there were a few who were rowing with you. Doug Abrams. Yes. Who, who in the heck is Doug and uh, so. how did you positively impact your life? So Doug Abrams is a former editor at HarperCollins. He had, he's a literary agent. I was desperately trying to find work um, and rebuild my life and fighting to get my son back from CPS and, and just hitting obstacle after obstacle. And I read a Craigslist ad for a part-time assistant at a literary agency um, that worked with, you know, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. So I was like, is this a scam? I read the job description. It was like five hours a week, you know, five to 10 hours a week, you know, an hour, like, you know, $20 an hour kind of job. And I was like, oh, okay, let me do this because writing and books are really my passion. It's what I love. You know, I've done all these jobs through my life to pay the bills while I'm a mom, but this is my thing. Let me just, I'm starting over. Let me just try. So you know, I wasn't sure it was legit. Um, I had a car that didn't drive uphill at the time. It was like donated <laughs> to me and his house was up a hill where the agency was. And so I went and interviewed with him. And by and the way, I, you, you wrote about that. You're not, you're not kidding, right? I mean, it really did not go uphill. No, it, it had oil it, everywhere. Oil everywhere. And it had no acceleration up a hill. So it was like a sad golf cart trying to make it up a hill, which is very stressful. And so I went and I interviewed with him. He didn't, and on paper, apart from that gap, you know, I have a, I have, you know, I worked at a small press in college. I have some writing back. I had an MFA in creative writing. And so on paper, I looked a little overqualified even for his part-time assistant job. So he hired me, he had me, uh, he said, oh, read this manuscript. He said, oh, and, and give some edits. We're doing a, a book with Desmond Tutu, give some edits to this biography. And um, so I did that. I had this, you know, my, when, I had gotten my my youngest son back. And so I was doing it in the middle of the night, learning how to do track changes in Word. And so he never asked me about my criminal, you know, if I had a criminal background, you know, it's not the first thing you think of meeting me. Um, and and I had sort of a don't ask, don't tell policy. I was like, I'm going to be honest if someone asks, but I'm not going to just yeah. blurt it out there, right? Um, and so I was had been working for him for a few weeks. He immediately introduced me to an author who, and I read the proposal and had some ideas about structure. And I remember him saying, I'm going to conference you in with this author. And I was like, I've never talked to an author. I can't, you know, I was terrified. Um, and so I gave my ideas and I just immediately started working with that author. And so I was in Doug's office and I remember I was in a, we had a home office at the time. Um, and he was on a phone call with Dick Bolts, because one of the books he did was What Color Is Your Parachute? And um, I was sitting across, you know, typing away on my laptop. And and I remember the air changing in the office, like this heaviness. And I looked up and he was looking at me with this look of like horror on his face. And he had been talking to Dick about updating the book. And they're saying, well, everyone Googles their employees now, right? And, and Doug's like, I never Googled her. Like I didn't, you know, and so he Googled me and that Sentinel article came up. And so he, um, 
hung up the phone right away. His face was white. Um, and you know, he just told me the day before how brilliant I was. And I was just hanging on to that. Right. And he sent me home and he's like, let's talk about it tomorrow. I never called any references. And I was like, well, here's the references. So I went home and I went home saying, I will never go back there again. Like I was mortified. It was my biggest fear. Um, I will never go back there again. And I talked to some friends and, um, and so I went back, he said, he told me to come back the next day. I went back the next day after a sleepless night and I walked in and I said, you know, I, I'm sorry I put you in this position. I'm just as brilliant today as I was yesterday. And I really important to me that, you know, I didn't lie to you, you know, but I'm, I'm sorry. And, and he is amazing because he said, look, I, I worked with Desmond Tutu who did the truth and reconciliation commission and is all about forgiveness and I need to walk my talk. So mm. I, I started working there and, and started um, collaboratively writing with a lot of the authors for that agency. Man, that's a good story. And if it ends there, I can high five you, but it, <laughs> it, it's in some regards, it just starts there. Mm -hmm. So you, uh, you're forgiven which like, is just the greatest, like, I love that. He just holds you. And he essentially says, and if someone has a problem with that, then we don't want to work with them. Yeah. Because I was so worried that my reputation would damage his reputation or the agencies. And we're working with, you know, these amazing world leaders and authors and professors. And he always said that he said, if someone doesn't want to work with us because of your reputation, we don't want to work with them. And that's a beautiful thing to hear, you know? Um, a moment ago, you were bragging on a book you read called On Fire, and uh, I'm going to ask you to brag on a couple of books by more world-renowned authors uh, and storylines, The Book of Joy. Yes. I would imagine many of our listeners have read it, but for those who right. haven't, uh, what's it about? So, so The Book of Joy, one of the first books I ghost wrote was The Book of Forgiving, right, with Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And then after that, Doug said, um, you know, let's do a book with Tutu and the Dalai Lama and put that together. And we worked on the proposal and Doug was their, their co-author on that. We went to India to work on that book. And, you know, one of the crazy things I'm going to India to work on that book, I'm still on probation. I'm not sure they're going to let me in the country. Right. Um, and I'm sitting there with the Dalai Lama and I'm sure that he's, you know, we get to meditate with him in his private residence. And I'm sure the whole time that he's going to look at me see into my soul and see that I'm bad, right? The book is about joy and forgiveness and perspective and compassion. And, you know, he's the most compassionate man in the world. But um, I was so full of shame that I, I was certain, you know, I was going to get kicked out of that room, right? And that I'm, you know, lived in fear of people finding out about my past, you know, and I, I did that for 10 years, working with Stanford professors, designing your life. I was the collaborative writer for that book and the sun does shine. And admittedly, we're working, Brian Stevenson, Just Mercy, you know, we were his literary agent. I'm working with very non-judgy authors, but I was in such shame and fear that someone would find out about my past. I was incarcerated. And so I hid in the, the books I was collaborative writing. I hid in the acknowledgements of books. I, I poured out as much of my creativity and myself into the books I was writing. Um, but completely hiding in 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 the backs of the books and hiding behind those authors and trying to be as good adjacent as I could to prove to the world that I was good. Mm. You know, like look at all the good this book is doing. Like I had a part of it. So therefore, by the transitive property of goodness, I must now have good assigned to me. You know, it was really external good I was trying to cloak myself in. 
when did that change from needing to prove it to knowing that you were to like just experiencing grace and full acceptance and being able to look in the mirror and feel like that's enough? There's no one moment when it changed. It was incremental. I think I started telling a few authors when I worked on a book called The Sun Does Shine, uh, where I was a, the co-author. So my name is on the first book. My name's on the front of. Um, and it was a man who had spent 30 years on death row for a crime he didn't commit, Anthony Ray Hinton. And um, Brian Stevenson was his lawyer who'd gotten him off of death row. And and Doug and I were at breakfast in Montgomery, Alabama with Brian. And Doug turned to me and said, tell Brian about your past. And I was like, oh, because I, you know, and so I told Brian and he was like, oh, great. That's really going to help you with Ray's book. I'm so glad you have that background. And I was like, what? You know, like the world didn't end. Right. And, you know, ultimately no one was judging me as much as I was judging myself. But, you know, and when Doug was selling that book and editors are bidding on it, he's like, we have the greatest writer. You know how hard it is to find an MFA who's been incarcerated. And they were like, oh, that's wonderful about Laura. And these are editors I've worked with for years. And I was like, what? it's a, it's a selling point now, you know? So, so that was really the beginning. And I started telling more of the authors I worked with. Um, but really the big, like the big pivotal moment was when I got on that TEDx stage where a friend made me get up there and I told about the worst thing, the worst version of myself I've ever been. Like the thing I was so afraid of, of everyone Googling, I just said it. And there was such a it was such a moment of lightness and freedom yeah. for me. And like the thing that reminds you in your book, the red jacket story, that was my, you know, that story. I was like, that was my moment where I just held my head up and I was like, this is who I have been. And, mm. you know, it was such a, uh, I remember that moment of lightness afterwards. I was like, okay, I just own my story. So I, my kids are relatively spoiled. They're just, you know, they're lovely kids, but their life is good. It's kind of rolled out with a red carpet. I was preparing for the interview, you know, getting ready for weeks, but in particular last night, listening to some of your conversations, listening to the TED talk in particular, and my son, Jack, walked into the kitchen while it was on. And 13 minutes later, he said, wow, what a story. You know, this is a kid that I, I can't make him sit next to me for 32 seconds to watch a sunset or watch a replay of a home run, but he watched the entire thing in mm. awe. He said, it's her voice and it's her journey and it's the way she wears it. Mm. I just think there's something about those sort of things, your voice. And when I, I unpack that, I don't think it's that blend of East Coast and California. And yeah, I don't think that's what he meant. It's this raw, unapologetic, grace-filled, vulnerability mm. that you wore that day at that TED stage. And I've picked up on it during this conversation. Like, listen, you're not proud of where you've been, but it's part of where you've been. And that's right. who you are. Just for the, the listeners who may not be as comfortable yet wearing their red jacket in my mm -hmm. book or uh, being open with their story. Uh, what's your encouragement on how we can slide that first arm in and then put the other one on and then look probably in the mirror at who we are? Mm. I mean, I think it's so, you know, for me, what helps me do it, because I, I wasn't going to even do the book unless I was going to be raw and honest. And, you know, it's very raw and honest in the book. You have the a little bit of a muted version here uh, for people, but I think you never know how your struggles, even if someone doesn't have those same exact struggles or never 
could imagine them, or even if you're a cautionary tale, right? Like I could be a cautionary tale or it could inspire people, but you never know how much it's going to help them. And I think for me, um, the people who've said, wow, that, you know, either makes me feel better about my life or my mistakes. Um, you know, in that Ted talk, I asked everyone to close their eyes and think about the worst thing they've ever done. Right. And then I, I, I pretended like I was going to make them tell to a stranger and every, there was like gasping. And it was like, that's that shame. And everybody has shame about something, I think. So, you know, the minute you say it out loud, the minute you get a community around you or one person that is, is, uh, to support you. Cause you know, sh shame doesn't stand a chance to community. It doesn't stand a chance against vulnerability and sharing and just sort of that shared humanity that's in all the books I've ever worked on. You know, there's always this element of shared humanity. So it's hard to be, it's hard to own your story, but it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a lightness. If it's, if not owning your story is weighing you down, that lightness is like no drug I've ever taken. Mm. You know, you, you've been part of more than 13 book projects. You were in the very, very, very back region of the first 12 or so. Your name mentioned, if I read closely, mm -hmm. then the sun does shine. You're on the front page, but you're, you're below the author. Yes. And then there's this one. And your name is in big letters, Laura, love, heart, and on the front page. And it, the story you're talking about is not someone in Nepal or someone in South Africa or someone in Montgomery, Alabama. It's someone who grew up in the East Coast, moved out to the West Coast and made every mistake imaginable along the way. What's it's someone it like? who failed spectacularly, right? right? So what's it like for you to, to, <laughs> to let it all out like that? You started this by saying, what did I want to be when I was young? Like in many ways, you know, this is not the book I imagined as a kid when I imagined myself being a writer. This is not the book uh, I thought I would write, <laughs> but it, it's 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 the fulfillment of a lifelong dream, but it's also more lightness. It's more, it's letting go of my shame more, you know, like I, I paid in, and everybody who's incarcerated and who gets out and reenters society pays for so, in so many ways they have no idea about. Um and so I, uh, you know, there's no shame anymore because I've put it all out there. There's nothing to hide from. Even my kids read this book and that's, you know, a whole other thing. So, um, but it is just freeing. It's just freedom. And I like this kind of freedom that's coming with this book. And it's fun and it's uncomfortable and it's weird and it's your life. You know, it's not like a novel where you can say, oh, that character is horrible. You know, this is my life. And so it's vulnerable, but, but I'm okay. Yeah, well, you you mentioned it. I forget how you framed it. Like we're giving them the watered down version. Yeah, partially. Partially. I think we're not giving them as funny a version as it ends up being. Like it's really ironically very funny at various parts. So uh, yeah, loved it. But I also love that work that you're doing outside of being an author. You are also a voice for the voiceless. Talk about the Gemma Project. So the Gemma Project uh, is a nonprofit. Um, you know, I mentioned that 80% of women in jail and, and most women, I think there's 160,000 women incarcerated right now, but the majority are in jails. It's it's close to even, but, you know, jails are really sort of our doorway when we talk about mass incarceration. Um, and most women are in jails and 80% of them are mothers. So the Gemma Project is a, a nonprofit I founded with a former mayor of Santa Cruz. Her name is Cynthia. She's in the book. Um, I have interactions with her in the book early on. And we started this to really restore hope and opportunity and, 
and community and to uh, so both do programming in in jail for women and reentry services so people don't have to uh, struggle as much as they struggle with reentry and all the barriers to uh, to rebuilding a life. We're going to provide model site replication across the country. There's 3,116 jails in this country, and women respond really well to programming, and jails are built for men, so it's very gender-responsive and trauma-responsive programming, and then third component is some policy advocacy and change. If you're someone who wants to help incarcerated or formerly incarcerated women, um, then, you know, this is, this is one of the places that are doing that work, and it's really important work. Mama Love, we we are yes. down to our uh, our final seven questions. They're called the Live Inspired Seven. It's a series of questions I ask every author, every guest, every overcomer, every hero <laughs> that we've had on our show. So buckle up, get ready for it. I think okay. you're capable of answering these. In particular, the first one, what's been for you the most influential or the most beneficial book you've ever read? Um. That is actually a hard question because I read so much and I have so many authors I represent, but I'm actually going to say The Book of Awakening by Mark Nepo. I don't know it. Tell me about it. It's a book I read in jail, like the second half of my jail sentence. Um, it's a beautiful, inspiring um, little essays on topics, but they were by date. So I used it like a horoscope and it's just a profound book of his journey of overcoming. And so it was very inspiring. Uh, incredibly inspiring for me in jail. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little girl that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Uh, playfulness, hmm. but I'm working on that. I pick up on that. I think there's a little more playfulness that uh, you're letting on to. Yeah. If your home caught fire, and all living things, I know you got a lot of animals, a lot of kids, stepkids, family, all living things are out and you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one item. What's the one thing you would grab? I wouldn't go back in. I would not, you know, I've rebuilt, I've rebuilt my life. There's, if everyone out I love is, is safe, I don't think I would go, I wouldn't go back in even if I had the opportunity because I've rebuilt my life before and everything I need would be outside. I wouldn't risk it. Life can turn on you in a second. I wouldn't take that risk. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? Mm. My mom passed away five years ago. So I would, and we never got to have the long, hard conversations that I think I'm capable of having now. And, and so I would want her, you know, also she would love all of this. You know, like you talked about the humor in the book, in my book, you know, Hollywood read it and was like, this is hilarious. So it will be a comedy series. So I would, she would be thrilled at that. But I think there's, I, I think there's so many conversations I wish I could have with her now. What's the best advice your mother or Desmond Tutu or the Dalai Lama or anybody else ever gave you? So the best advice, Laura, you've ever received is. Mm. You know, I'm going to go back to that Mark Nepo book, The Book of Awakening. And it's it, it's not, it's implicit advice. It's pain pushes until vision pulls. Mm. And that 
is, was my mantra in jail. It's been my mantra through all these years. And, you know, I think I got to a point where I'm not going to let pain push me. I'm gonna let vision pull me. I mean, I'm always looking for a tattoo moment in these podcasts. And you just gave me the words that I'll have emblazed on my right arm when I leave the studio today. Pain (laughs) pushes until until vision. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. If you could go back in time and and whisper some wisdom your way at age 20, what would you say to yourself? Mm, I would say it's all going to be okay. And don't stop writing. (laughs) Laura Love Harden, Mama Love, it's been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? Mm. She made a lot of mistakes and she did a lot of good. Mama Love, you made more mistakes than (laughs) I, uh, I was familiar with until I read the book, The Many Lives of Mama Love, and yet they have been redeemed. It is an amazing story and so is your life. I want to thank you for uh, putting yourself out there, for wearing the red jacket and the readers of On Fire know what that means. Mm -hmm. And for showing the rest of us that the mistakes of yesterday don't have to define who we become tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. My friends, that is Laura Love Harden. She's the author of The Many Lives of Mama Love. My name is John O'Leary and today is your day. What a gift. Live inspired. So I love the quotes that Laura shared during the Live Inspired 7. Pain pushes until vision pulls. Isn't that awesome? Whether you're upside down in your finances in the midst of challenges relationally or lost your way in your faith journey, pain will push until vision, hope, promise, potential pulls. My friends, if you enjoyed hearing about her redemptive story as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, you will love the conversation that we had several years ago with my dear friend, Andre Norman. At age 18, Andre Norman received a prison sentence, not for a year, but for 25 years. He was so violent and so difficult to handle that he was moved to nine different state prisons during that time. After the second conviction for attempted murder, Andre was sent to solitary confinement for two years by himself in the dimness of a small cell locked up and cut off he realized that he did not want to die in jail and he yelled out five words that changed his lives and maybe my change yours too here they are i don't want this anymore i don't want this anymore for him that was a turning point he spent the next decade transforming who he was into who he knew he could become he taught himself to read He earned a GED. He learned about managing anger with a counselor, learned about the power of forgiveness from a rabbi, and learned about the power of faith and love from two beautiful nuns. Today, Andre is a college graduate. He is a remarkable father. He's an awesome friend, and he has the ability to teach us how to embrace decisions in our life to make sure that our future is better than our past. If you want to learn more about my buddy, and this man is truly my friend, Check it out at episode 95. That's where you'll find the Andre Norman conversation, episode 95. Or cruise on over with me right now to www.johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. My friends, you know I love you and there's nothing you can do about it. Grateful you joined us this time and reminding you that the foundation is firm. The headwinds may be real. 
but the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. Live inspired. Helians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at keelycompanies.com.